Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So tonight, we are going to not talk about COVID again, so that's exciting. Uh, We're going to start tonight with some updates from Mars. And so Perseverance has been working hard over the last nine months, and this week, Percy has abraded a new circle on a patch of rock, exposing the material underneath for the first time to the Martian air in order to look at the rock's substrate. And so the rover uh, is doing this in order to get fresh samples of different kinds of rocks. And so the rover does this abrasion and then it will take a core from this newly exposed layer. And so as we've talked about before, Percy is storing those cores in a kind of lazy Susan uh, capsule um, holder underneath the chassis of the rover. And the hope is, is that at some point uh, that lazy Susan will be filled with all kinds of rock samples. And then that entire um, apparatus will be able to be dropped and picked up by another uh, lander that will actually be able to retrieve it and then lift off from Mars and come back to Earth with those rocks, um, which will be really, really exciting. Um, and I think that is scheduled for the 2030s. Um, so, you know, not quite, uh, right now, but still, um, it might be pushed up. Who knows? And so, What happens is that Percy is looking for rocks that can help us discover, obviously, the geological history of the planet. So part of uh, what all of the rovers are doing is trying to help us learn more about the geological history of Mars. Um, And so not only is it interesting just so that we have that um, information, but it's also really interesting to compare it to the Earth because Mars and the Earth, um, are, were basically both composed from the same, um, dust clouds, obviously, initially. And so they should have a lot of similarities, but the differences can tell us a lot about why things happened differently on Mars versus on Earth. And so researchers have found that at least some of the rocks in the Yezero crater are igneous. And so those would have originated in the planet's interior, which is pretty exciting um, because that helps us know more about what's in the interior without having to dig down into it. They also found um, recently, and I think I talked about this earlier, um, that Yezero experienced violent flash floods in the ancient past. And so there would have been a lot of moving rock. um, And so some of the rocks in the crater may have come from other places. So it looks like it's a pretty good place to find all sorts of different um, kinds of um, minerals and rocks. And yeah, it's You've already been able, we've already been able to see in all the pictures, there've been a lot of different colored rocks, which usually, uh, indicates that they have a different mineral content. And so, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, it's nothing groundbreaking this week. It's sort of Percy's just kind of chugging along with doing what it does. Um, but it's still pretty exciting that it is able to, um, be able to pick up these, um, samples that will hopefully be uh, coming back to scientists sometime in the not-too-distant future. And so right now, Percy is to the southeast of the original landing site on the edge of the South Seta region, which is uh, characterized by a series of sand dunes and ridges. And so that can be hard to navigate. Um, One of the things that we know about Percy is that um, it was designed to really be able to um, go over rough, hard ground. And so the um, wheels are made of metal. 
And um, they did a lot of testing on Earth in order to be able to know that this was going to work. And so hopefully everything's going to go well. But luckily, not only has Percy been built for this, but Percy has a companion that is able to scout ahead and look at the route. So uh, as you know, Ingenuity uh, is also on the Red Planet in Yezero Canyon and um, in Yezero Crater, excuse me. And Ingenuity is basically continuing to absolutely shatter expectations. Uh, and so Yezero Crater is in the Northern Hemisphere. And so the Northern Hemisphere of Mars is now experiencing summer. And so this has caused a seasonal variation in the density of the atmosphere from around 1.5% of Earth's atmosphere to around 1.0%. And that might not seem like a lot, but it's a big deal for a helicopter that already had to be extremely carefully designed for flying in the thicker version of Mars's extremely thin atmosphere. <laughs> um, and so there was a lot of concern that even at 1.5%, you know, ingenuity wouldn't be able to get off the ground. But um, to then go down to only 1% was a real worry. Uh, NASA engineers, however, had a plan. They figured that if they could increase the rotation of ingenuity's blades from just over 2,500 um, RPM to around 28 RPM, 2800, excuse me, RPM, they could compensate for the thinning. And so they first tried this back in September, and the initial trial was a failure. Uh, but they went back to the drawing board, and it turned out that they were able to diagnose a problem with the uh, flight control motors. And so they implemented a fix for this, and they tried again on October 24th. And this time, the little helicopter rose up around five meters and moved horizontally around two meters. And so this proof of concept led confidence to the team. And recently, the helicopter completed its 15th flight, flying for 128.8 seconds and around 400 meters across the surface of the planet. And so all told, Ingenuity has flown more than three kilometers or a little under 1.9 miles, and that's around five times further than the initial mission prospectus. And so it is definitely hitting it out of the ballpark. And so this flight actually represents the first leg in a route to take it back to where it began, Wright Brothers Field and the Octavia E. Butler landing site. It will rendezvous with Percy uh, once it gets there, and as I noted, will become a scout to check out the road ahead for the rover. And so all in all, NASA's dynamic duo is continuing to do amazing things on the red planet, which is very exciting because Mars is kind of where it's at these days, obviously. And so I'm really excited at how much ingenuity is being able to do. And they actually think that they're going to be able to do a, um, a system upgrade on ingenuity and might, and they might even actually be able to get more out of it than they already are in the future. And so that's planned, um, I think for next year, um, or maybe in the spring, but no earlier than in the late spring, I'd say. Um, and so, yeah, that is extremely exciting. NASA is having some great luck on Mars. It's not having some great luck on Earth necessarily. So, uh, it's good to, uh, focus on the winds. Um, there is a little bit of a kerfuffle going on about the, uh, mission to the moon right now. Uh, there is some, um, basically billionaires are fighting over who gets to do it. And um, personally, I think that the idea that billionaires are fighting about it is absolutely terrible and an absolute indictment of the entire system of capitalism. And you know the story. Um, if you're a regular listener, you know that I don't think there's anything good about that. And I don't actually uh, support 
um, private space development, I think that we should be funding more governmental, uh, missions and actually funding NASA, uh, more than farming out everything. But, uh, apparently everything is about privatization because we live in a, um, we live in the darkest timeline. That's all, that's all there is to it. We live in the darkest timeline. But even in the darkest timeline, there are glimmers of uh, hope and happiness. And so Percy and Ingenuity are definitely one of those glimpses of hope and happiness. And so hopefully they will continue to be able to shine and be that. Okay, so... We haven't talked about a citizen science project in a while, and I feel kind of bad about that because I love hyping citizen science projects because they're just such a cool idea, and they're just so amazing that you can actually get involved in real research as just a regular person. You don't have to have any scientific background. They teach you how to do the project. And, um, you know, people have actually gotten their names in papers because they've helped out in citizen science projects. And so it's super cool and amazing. And so I wanted to highlight this one. And it is one by astronomers with the Next Generation Transit Survey, survey or NGTS. And so they're looking for citizen scientists to help sift through large volumes of data they've collected from scans of large areas of the sky with a collection of small robotic telescopes. The goal is to de detect dips in stars' light that would indicate that a planet has passed between the star and Earth. They've run the data through computer checks, but computers are not as good at humans as distinguishing a planet or the curve of a planet from various kinds of noise. And so the idea is to look for a transit light curve, a characteristic signal where the light from a star dips as a planet transits across its face. These generally have a fairly steep drop as the planet transits, followed by a long, flat reduction. But dips can also be caused by sunspots or short-term variations in activity, which can confuse the detection. And NGTS faces noise caused by the atmosphere because all of these telescopes are ground-based. In addition, because the telescopes have periods of downtime in which they will temporarily stop observing, this again causes problems for the software algorithms. And so basically, there are just some things that humans are better at um, than the software. So the software takes a first path, pass at it, and then they actually need real human beings to look at it. So if you're interested, you can navigate to the website Zooniverse, uh, Z-O-O-N-I-V-E-R-S-E, and get started looking at light curves flagged by the algorithm. So basically, you'll be asked to determine things like whether a light curve has a flat bottom or a V-shape. Unfortunately, the curves here are not as data-dense as those from previous projects like the Kepler project. So guesswork will definitely be needed. Um, and that's why the algorithm has such a hard time with it, because even humans are going to have a bit of a hard time. But the nice thing is that several people look at each image. So no one person will make or break the decision to either pursue a curve further or ignore it. Um, and so that is how they do all the projects. They have, you know, several people look at everything and then they look at the aggregate information from the people who have looked at that particular um, piece of data. And, you know, astronomy is just one of the best fields for citizen science. I mean, definitely it is a place where people are able to get in on the ground floor uh, without having to have a lot of training. I mean, lots of amateur astronomers are out there and are finding things and being able to name interesting bits of the solar system after themselves uh, and the universe, I should say, not just the solar system. But um, yeah, so if you're interested, head over to the website. Again, that's Zooniverse and get started. Um, yeah, citizen science projects are awesome. I am still sad that I haven't really had time to do one lately. I really enjoyed uh, doing a 
um, project where you were trying to identify animals taken from camera traps in Africa. And that was really cool because occasionally you saw something really neat, like um, a secretary bird or a lion or a uh, a pod of elephants. And so, yeah, even occasionally you would see a little uh, big cat. Uh, and so I'm trying to think of what ones they have. Um, I'm forgetting which ones they have in Africa. It's not an ocelot. That's in South America. But anyways, um, <laughs> so as as we talked about already, we did not start tonight's show talking about the pandemic. And I really don't want to talk about the pandemic. Um, I will just say that if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, uh, please do. If you haven't gotten a booster yet and you qualify, go ahead and get a booster. Um, obviously, um, they're not being distributed anywhere but the U.S. So those doses are available. And so if you think you should get a booster, you should do it um, following the CDC guidelines. I am almost certainly going to get a booster in the near future because I um, qualify under the CDC guidelines. And so it's just it's just good uh, to do. We've lost the, you know, I feel like we lost the uh, the moral war. And so at this point, you might as well. So anyways, like I said, don't really want to talk about it. Um, I will note that Germany is having a big spike in their uh, daily counts of COVID cases. So uh, probably don't want to travel to Germany anytime soon. Just an FYI. Um, not that they're the only country. I just happened to notice a uh, article about Germany. I'm sure there's other places that are struggling, including the U.S. So, you know, we don't have anything to talk about in the U.S. We are still like one of the worst um, in vaccine uptake. And yeah, and we still have tons of cases coming in. Anyways, I said I was not going to talk about COVID tonight. So let's, let's keep that promise and move on. I did want to discuss though, a much smaller and initially very mysterious outbreak. The CDC has been tracking four cases of melioidosis, a hard-to-diagnose disease usually found in soil and water in tropical and subtropical climates such as South Asia. The disease is called caused by a bacterium, Burkholderia pseudomalia, and the infections have left two people dead, including one of them was a child. And so while there are usually a handful of cases of melioidosis in the U.S. each year, they're generally associated with travel to areas where the bacterium is endemic. The four recent cases in Kansas, Minnesota, Texas, and Georgia weren't associated with any travel, but the CDC knew they had to be connected in some way. The first came, the first case came in March from a Kansas adult, which proved fatal. On June 30th, the CDC released a health alert after health officials found two other cases, an adult in Minnesota and a four-year-old in Texas. Both of those patients recovered, but in early August, the CDC noted that a fourth case in Georgia was found during a post-mortem analysis in late July. And so this is presumably the child who succumbed to the disease. The CDC conducted whole genome sequencing of the bacteria and found that all four strains were closely matched and similar to strains found in South Asia. Investigators then began looking for a common source, and it turns out that the cause was a rather odd one. The infection was caused by, apparently, a Better Homes and Garden lavender and chamomile essential oil-infused aromatherapy room spray with gemstones. Whew, that is a mouthful. Uh, and so they were sold at Walmart and manufactured in India. When you think about the thousands of things people come in contact with around their homes, it's remarkable we were able to identify the source and confirm it in the lab. Inger Damon, director of CDC's Division of High Consequence Pathogens and Pathology, which manages myeliodosis, noted, CDC scientists and our partners found the proverbial needle in the haystack, which is really true. Um, 
And so Walmart is recalling around 3,900 bottles of the spray, uh, which apparently came in six different scents. Now, the product was sold at 55 Walmart stores nationwide and online between February 21 and October 21. Now, there are no stores on the East Coast that stocked the deadly spray, um, but people could have gotten it off of the internet. The CDC has contacted the manufacturer in India to assess whether the ingredient from the contaminated products was used elsewhere. They are also testing additional samples to see if other samples were contaminated. They confirmed that at least one other bottle tested positive for B. pseudomaliae. Um, but I'm not sure. I think that's the same scent. They didn't specify. Um, and so maliodosis is hard to diagnose because it presents with a variety of symptoms that are basically uh, present on a case-by-case basis. They can be vague and easily confused with other serious infections. But if you can figure it out, it can be treated with intravenous antibiotics, but delays in treatment can decrease survival rates. It has a mortality rate from 10 to 50% overall, but can peak at 90% for serious infections. Now, it rarely spreads from person to person, so again, these were isolated outbreaks. Um, On the extremely off chance that you or someone you know has a bottle of the spray, um, you should consult the CDC website for disposal instructions. Apparently, bottles can be returned to Walmart uh, for proper handling, and you can uh, get compensation. Um, But yeah, it's very weird. Um, that something so random would cause people to get this, like, really, frankly, rare and odd disease. Um, and it's a little bit scary. I mean, two people died. Um, now, of course, you don't want to panic. This was a freak event. Um, and I'm sure that there will be, um, some reason for why it happened. It could have been you know, people weren't paying very much attention in the factory. Um, it could have been the fact that there were literal rocks in the uh, bottles. And if the rocks weren't properly sterilized before they were put into the bottles, that could have been the problem. Um, you know, I would, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I wouldn't worry that everything in your house is now trying to kill you, obviously. It's just, it was a weird and interesting tidbit of information that I wanted to share. I don't want to panic anyone. Um, of course, I'm safe because I hate artificial scents. <laughs> um, I can't stand perfumes and that sort of thing. Um, there are a few exceptions, um, but for the most part, I really dislike uh, artificial scent. So I would never buy anything that uh, said it was for aromatherapy because mm, no, thank you. Okay. So we are going to take a break now. Um, now that I've scared you properly, that everything in your house is trying to kill you. Um, it's not, I swear, I promise. <laughs> um, we're going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we are going to talk about another of my favorite kinds of things. So we're actually going to come back in, when we come back, we're actually going to get to listen to a song of sorts. So that's going to be fun. I always like to actually integrate some audio into my show. So stay tuned for that. I'll be back in just a few moments. You are listening to Evidence Based radio. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. 
We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes, and sound sculptures. Arte Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Hey, it's Dio from the Enviro Show, which is the Valley's only local radio show devoted solely to environmental issues right here on WXOJLP Valley Free Radio. That's right. And I'm Glenn reminding you that we're at 103.3 FM and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. And not so live on Thursdays at 2. And since it's the end of the world as we know it, why not spend your last hour with us? Exactly. We will help you cope with the end of the world without resorting to drugs or Facebook, even though we are on Facebook. And online at enviroshow.wordpress.org. Remember, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Got it? Yes. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build, your excuse flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio. W-X-O-J-L-P, Northampton. The Kids Show on WXOJ is a great show, Saturday mornings, 8 to 9. So please tune in and listen to it. I want my milk and I want it now. I want my milk and I want it now. My breast and well, I want my bottle both, and I want my milk and I want it now. And I want you to listen to the kids' I show. I want my bath and I want it now. So we'll see you next Saturday. I want my... Sundays from 4 to 6, please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week, we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. That's WXOJ-FM Metal Education with Adam on the Air every Sunday. See you there. Okay, we are back. And as I said, we are going to talk about one of my other favorite things besides citizen science, which is the sonification or songification of data. And so researchers at the University of Durham in England have songified data in order to better showcase the effects of the most energetic series of extreme storms on record to hit the Atlantic coasts of Western Europe in 2014. They hope to make it easier to understand the data and to show the impact of climate change with a snapshot of the data from these destructive storms. They digitally altered a version of the popular sea shanty, What Shall We Do With a Drunken Sailor? Historically, scientific data has normally been conveyed visually as charts or illustrations, said Richard Thompson, director of the University of Plymouth Marine Institute, which collaborated with the university's Interdisciplinary Center for Computer Music Research, 
or the ICCMR, on the project. However, the combination of sound and images provides significantly more alternatives to convey information. And so this is actually a video. So if you want to see the entire thing, um, it does have a visual as well. But I think you can get a lot of it just from listening. Song of the Sea is a novel way of using actual climate data in such a way that it controls the music. And with extreme natural events predicted to increase in frequency and ferocity, there is no barrier to its principles being applied to represent the far-reaching effects of climate change on our planet. So, let us take a moment to listen. was the song. I think it's pretty awesome even just as a song, but I like lots of interesting and uh, avant-garde music, so maybe that's just me. So the project was designed by Clive Mead and Dieter Hurl, both IC- ICCMR members. Mead looked at seven different sea shanties before settling on What Would You Do With a Drunken Sailor?, as a proof of concept to coincide with the COP26 Climate Change Forum, which is happening right now. Now, the song was first written down in 1839 as an account of a whaling voyage, but it most likely originated even earlier. A professional singer laid down different tracks for all of the sea shanties, while Mead wrote and choreographed the music using a mix of traditional and contemporary instruments from online orchestral libraries. 
He then added some pilot whale, sperm whale, and dolphin sounds to the mix. The storm data was gathered by the Southwest Regional Coastal Monitoring Program over a 48-hour period in February 2014. The data includes wind speed, air pressure, temperature, and wave height. The extreme storms washed away a main line rail line linking Dawlish in South Devon and London. Hurl's role was to turn the data into sound and music and keep it interesting. The temperature, for example, might not alter up or down for a long time, so the temptation is to make that more sensitive, he said, but you have to keep it within limits. And so in the end, wave heights were matched to an echo effect on the words, which became more distorted as heights increased. Tempo was linked to wind speed, so the song speeds up when the wind speed increases. Pressure was mapped to pitch, so you can hear a deepening and ominous slurring of the vocals at the storm's peak intensity. And finally, temperature was matched with the drum distortion effect. The drum beat crunches as the temperature drops. All in all, they condensed the storm's 48-hour period of ferocity into a 3.5-minute song. You have to strike a balance between the accuracy of the data and the way we listen to and appreciate music, Mead said. That's been our guiding philosophy from day one. It'd be up to the public to judge if we'd succeeded. I think they certainly have. Now, sea shanties have a long and storied history and have actually seen a resurgence in popularity as of late. Uh, so if you're not uh, hip to what the kids are doing, uh, there was a wave on TikTok of performances uh, that recently took that platform by storm, shall we say. Uh, and of course, the melding of scientific data with sound and song can be a powerful tool for understanding certain trends and events. And so let's hope that it's appreciated by those at COP26. Uh, not that I actually have any hope that anyone in real power is going to do anything about climate change, but I'm a climate change uh, doomer. So don't be like me. Um, have faith. <laughs> Somebody has to. Uh, I'm just very uh, cynical and just very resigned to the fact that um, humans are not good at long-term planning. And yeah, um, but you know, people keep trying and that's super awesome. And I absolutely applaud people who keep trying. Um, but yeah, let's move on <laughs> and talk about a classic scientific experiment and uh, some new information that has come to light recently about it. In 1952, chemist Stanley Miller and his advisor, Harold Urey, at the University of Chicago conducted a seminal experiment. It was mostly actually all Miller, and Urey actually really pushed that, which is very cool. Um, there's lots and lots of stories in science about uh, advisors basically stealing the work of their um, advisees because they can, um, especially if those advisees happened to be women. Um, good Lord, is there plenty of stories about that in the annals of history and also absolutely right up to the present day. I am 100% sure that that is still happening right now. Um, to both sexes, but also probably more to women. And so their 1953 paper gave the first evidence that complex organic molecules, which are the building blocks for life, could emerge from simpler inorganic precursors. This gave the first experimental weight to the idea of abiogenesis. So basically, the idea that uh, you can get life from uh, non-life, basically. And so this was, this is something that uh, if you ever listen to creationists, they always bring this up that, oh, they only did X, Y, or Z, and this is why that's wrong. And it's like, the reason that they have to bring it up is because it actually does give real definitive uh, proofs towards the fact that this is an absolutely viable possibility. Um, and so creationists are always trying to attack it. Um, and so, you know, it just, it's so funny because I just 
you know, there's so many people who are able to both believe in God and evolution. Like you don't have to be at odds. Like so many people are able to do it. And it's just frustrating to me to other people are not able to. Um, it, it's just one of those things that is a personal, um, <laughs> uh, a personal thorn for me anyways. And so in the present, a team of Spanish and Italian scientists have recreated the experiment and actually discovered something that the original duo missed. They found that the borosilicate glass used to make the tubes and flasks for the experiment actually sped up the rate at which organic molecules form. And so the idea of abiogenesis from what was then thought of as the quote-unquote primordial soup was first proposed by Alexander Operin in 1924 and J.B.S. Haldane in 1929. And so Miller wanted to test this hypothesis using a mix of what scientists thought would have been the components of Earth's original atmosphere. So he sealed methane, ammonia, and hydrogen inside a sterile 5-liter borosilicate glass flask connected to a second 500 milliliter flask half filled with water. He then heated the water to produce vapor, which was then passed into the larger flask filled with the chemicals to create a tiny version of the Earth's first atmosphere. He also incorporated continuous electric sparks between two electrodes to simulate lightning. He then cooled the atmosphere, causing the vapor to condense back into water which then trickled down into a trap at the bottom of the apparatus. The solution turned pink after the first day and red after a week. At that point, Miller removed the boiling fat flask and added barium hydroxide and sulfuric acid to stop the reaction. He then evaporated the solution to remove impurities and tested what remained via paper chromatography. Of 20 amino acids produced by living organisms, Miller's experiment produced five, though two were less sure. At least this was the original result. And so Yuri again suggested he published his findings, which were published in the journal Science. And so after that, basically history was made. And so the original apparatus has been on display at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science since 2013, um, because it's, you know, it's one of those incredibly famous experiments that everybody knows about, everybody talks about. Um, and like I said, it's a really, um, just, it's, it's a touch point for a lot of science, um, understanding around abiogenesis. Just turning on the spark in a basic prebiotic experiment will yield 11 out of 20 amino acids, Millard said in a 1996 interview. And so follow up from the work of, from the original experiment gave the 11 amino acids rather than those five initially discovered. But, that wasn't actually all. Shortly before Miller's death in, 20, in 2007, one of his students, Jeffrey Bada, now at the University of San Diego, inherited Miller's equipment, including a box containing dried residues from the original experiment. The samples were reanalyzed, and it was found that the original experiment had actually produced 25 different compounds. Samples from another experiment performed by Miller, in which the conditions of a water vapor-rich volcanic eruption were, st were simulated by spraying steam from a nozzle at the spark discharge, also yielded greater results in a re-examination by Bada and colleagues. They found that this experiment produced 22 amino acids, 5 amines, and several hydroxylated molecules. But getting back to the present, the researchers had hypothesized that the atmosphere Miller had created was highly alkaline and should have caused some of the silica in the flask to dissolve into the experiment. Therefore, it could be expected that upon contact of the alkaline water with the inner wall of the borosilicate flask, even this reinforced glass will slightly dissolve, releasing silica and traces of other metal oxides into the vapor. The authors wrote, and so to test this, they recreated the experiment using three types of flasks, a borosilicate reactor that was the same as Miller had used, a Teflon reactor, and a Teflon reactor with added borosilicate to the water. They found that fewer amino acids developed in the Teflon-only reactor. 
And so this is actually pretty cool. Um, not only because they learn something new, but because it suggests that silicates, which make up more than 90% of Earth's crusts, may have been weathered by the corrosive atmosphere. And this mixture in the water might have been what led to the development of organic light, organic life. <laughs> and so, uh, this is actually really something that is kind of the new frontier. Uh, people have moved away from the idea of a primordial soup. Um, and the finding supports the author's hypothesis. Corrosion on the surface of the glass caused by hot and caustic water circulating through it plays an important role in the production of the amino acids. And so the uh, silicate acts as a catalyst to speed up the chemical reactions between nitrogen, carbon, and hydrogen atoms that lead to the creation of organic molecules. The corrosion also caused millions of tiny pits to form in the glass. This suggests, or the researchers suggest, that these pits could have acted as tiny reaction chambers, further speeding up the rate at which organic molecules are created. And it turns out that the latest suggestions about how abiogenesis occurred, again, combine a reduced atmosphere, electrical storms, silicate-rich rocky surfaces, and intermittent liquid water. So pretty much exactly what was going on here. Miller recreated in his experiments the atmosphere and water of the primitive earth, the authors concluded. The role of the rocks was hidden in the walls of the reactors. And so, yeah, that is pretty amazing to uh, be able to continually get new information and new um, ideas about something that is such a seminal uh, experiment in the history of science that people are still looking at it and finding out new things is like one of the coolest parts of science. Absolutely, totally. I love that so much to be able to really re-examine things and find that in this case, not only did they do a good job, but they did an even better job than they realized. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty safe to say that abiogenesis is a pretty good working model for how life began on earth. Um, obviously it's not definitive. Um, we probably will never have a definitive because we don't have any way of really knowing exactly what happened, but it's a pretty good hypothesis and we continue to find evidence that it continues to be a pretty good hypothesis. Okay, let's go from groundbreaking research to, well, something that seems a lot more trivial, but apparently is actually uh, fairly important to know exactly what's going on and could, you know, be helpful in um, the future in other ways. So physicists have declared that they have finally, and you'll be very much forgiven for, for not knowing that they were looking for, uh, a solution to the teapot effect. What is the teapot effect, you may ask? It is the dribbling of tea down the side of the teapot while pouring. Now, again, this may seem rather trivial, but it's a problem that physicists have been trying to solve for decades. Work on the problem led to an Ig Nobel Prize at one point, and in 2019, Dutch physicists came up with a quantitative model to accurately predict the rate of flow for how much or how little a teapot will dribble as it pours. Thus, people thought that the problem was solved for the most part, but apparently not. Physicists at the Vienna University of Technology, TUVN, and University College London believe they're, they've not solved the last of the issue, that they've now solved the last of the issues with the theory. They believe they've developed a complete theoretical framework for the teapot effect and the complex interplay of inertial, viscous, and capillary forces at work, which redirect the flow of liquid depending on different conditions. Interestingly, it turns out that gravity only plays a small part. It simply determines the flow's direction. Um, and so one place uh, noted that the teapot will dribble on the, on the moon, but would not dribble on the International Space Station, um, which I think was funny. And so uh, they first published about this in September in the Journal of Fluid Mechanics. 
but now they have announced the results of experiments they devised to test their model. And they found that the model was quite robust. The information might be useful in controlling flows of items such as microfluidic devices in the future, so it's important. Now, the effect was first described in 1956 by Marcus Reiner, who would go on to pioneer the field of rheology, or the study of liquid flow. The Ig Nobel Prize was won by the Stanford engineer and mathematician Joseph B. Keller, who decided that the dripping was due to air pressure rather than surface tension, as many others had assumed. He suggested that the pressure of the liquid is lower at the pouring lip than in the surrounding air, which then pushes the tea against the lip and outside of the spout. And so basically, a higher flow rate allows for the layer of fluid that is closest to the spout to detach so it flows smoothly and doesn't drip. At lower flow rates, flow separation occurs and the layer reattaches itself to the spout's surface, leading to a dribble flow. Now, the spout's diameter, the curvature of the lip, and the wettability of the teapot's materials are all factors, but they aren't the primary factor. Primary factor. In 2010, French physicists found that the main cause is a kind of hydrocapillary effect that prevents the liquid from detaching from the spout, from the spout for a smooth, clean flow at lower rates of speed. They suggest that making the lip of the spout as thin and sharp-edged as possible reduced the dripple. They even suggested coating the lip with an ultra-water-repellent material. The 2019 study was inspired by co-author Etienne Jambon-Pouillet, uh, then a postdoc at the University of Amsterdam, who noticed that liquid wrapped around cylindrical needles in the syringes he was cleaning in the lab. He gathered a few colleagues and set up a series of vertical cylinders and shot jets of dyed water at them which they then videotaped to see how the liquid behaved at varying flow rates. They found that the water jets began to deflect some some at the lowest rate as the flow decreased, and then at the lowest rate, the water started to coil and cling to the cylindrical surface before spiraling around into a helix. Their model accurately predicted when the transition to sticking rather than detaching from a solid surface would occur. And so they found it is at a point when there is a coupling between hydrostatic suction and wetting that binds the liquid tea to the side of the teapot as it flows downward. The newest paper builds on this work and suggests that drops will inevitably form at the sharp edge under the spout's lip, meaning that the area is always wetted. And so basically, uh, what they found was that the smaller the angle and the more hydrophilic, which means loving of water, of the material, the more the teapot will dribble. Although this is a very common and seemingly simple effect, it is remarkably difficult to explain it exactly within the framework of fluid mechanics, said co-author Bernhard Schliel. We have now succeeded for the first time in providing a complete theoretical explanation of why this drop forms and why the underside of the edge always remains wet. And so, as noted, they actually then did these tests, and they found that there is a quite distinct moment when dropping below the critical flow rate results in wetting the edge and the telltale dribble takes place. So things you didn't know you needed to know. <laughs> all right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.